Hey, uh, thank you for sticking through Daniel. (laughs) It is a really big and crazy book uh, and it's exciting as well. But tonight we finish it off. We we are at the end, the final vision. We only read, we didn't even really read a lot of that final vision. We just read sort of like the, 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 the way that the vision comes is in chapter 10. You've got Daniel there and he's talking with these these two um, men or God-like men or men-like gods and, and they're having a chat about it and, and he's freaking out. Then there's the vision in chapter 11 and then in chapter 12, he's like, well, what does this all mean at the end? So we just got that what does this all mean bit at the end there. But um, this, this, these last three chapters are one massive, big final vision setting us up for the end. Uh, and so I'm excited to open that up for you tonight. I'd love you to join me and pray with me now that I'd do a good job of, uh, of unpacking God's Word and that we would be encouraged. So let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, you are good. You love us very much. You love us more than we believe. And yet we suffer and we face times of suffering and that's just how it's going to be and that's what you tell us. So Father, now as we hear another, a man being told that and yet being told to have hope, we pray, Father, that you would allow us to live in joyful, obedient, human hope. Pray, Lord, by your Spirit that I'd speak truth, that you would transform us to make that true. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we kick off. I would encourage you because, again, it was too big a Bible reading to read it all out at once. Grab it, open your Bible, cast your eyes over it as we go along so that you know uh, that what I'm saying is the stuff that's here, you get familiar with it. Um, I don't know about you, but I think books serve people, not people serve books. So my Bible's got like highlighters and markers and all sorts of stuff in it. And I, I give you permission to deface your Bible because that's not the, the book isn't the Word of God, uh, but the words in it contained in it, in it have the Word of God. So... Um, yeah, feel free to use your word here. Um, this is a really epic vision. Um, it's set up for us by the, the person who's put the book together in its final form like this, and it concerns, well, something a little disconcerting. It starts out concerning a great war. Now, this comes at the end of Daniel fasting for three weeks. And it seems like if he, Daniel's already the kind of guy who sees visions, but he's been fasting for three weeks. He's really seeing visions. A- and it praying seems to be what he was doing, because, of course, this is why, we, why you fast, so you have time to, pr- to pray. And, and yet, Daniel seems, if we add up the times of the years for this, for this time of fasting, he's been fasting even through the feasts. He would have had you know, Passover, and, um, and uh, one of, there's another festival at that time of year as well. But he was fasting through the feasts, asking for insight, asking for God's wisdom. And at that point, three, three weeks in, comes a man, an incredible vision of a man, you know, the, the sort of like jewel-like man, but, but a man. In fact, it's hard to tell if this is a God-like man or if it's a human-like God. And that's kind of interesting in the, in the context of all the spiritual beasts we've seen so far, isn't it? But anyway, we're there. So verse 5, notice there that it's a, a human with all human features, no, no weird warping like the other beasts, multiple wings, weird faces, multiple heads, multiple horns. Verse 16, it's emphasized again. This one, the one who looked like a man said to me. Verse 18, the one who looked like a man picked me up. This is so emphasized here that it is a human messenger. Now, of course, it's not actually human. It is, this is an angelic spirit of some kind. And yet here, for God, it's so important for Daniel to see that this one who, repre- who, who is a messenger from God is human rather than beastly, humane. And he strengthens and picks up 
Daniel, unlike the destroying beasts that have come through the rest of um, the rest of these visions. Now, why did he come? Like, why did he come after three weeks? I mean, three weeks is a long time to fast. I don't know if he had any food, but, but that three weeks is a long time to fast. And, and he actually answers Daniel and says to Daniel, well, I've actually been engaged in some sort of spiritual warfare. I've been doing some, 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 some work behind the scenes of all of this unveiling of history that I've been doing. Now, we don't really know exactly what the combat was, but he says, the prince of Persia resisted me for three weeks. So I'm not sure if this angel was kind of like fighting literally in a battle or if he was working on the prince of Persia's heart. We're not sure. But in the style of an apocalypse, which is what these visions are, they're not primarily meant to be about telling you when things are going to happen, but they tell us if I open the curtain... Now, if I've got a little curtain slide here. If I open the curtain, that behind all of the things that you see are spiritual forces at play. Deliberately, in this case, coming from this human guy. So there's, the, so there's, there's this sort of prince who's been fighting against God's forces some way. There's a war going on. Um, but the problem is, is that we don't know how this sort of works. Like, we can't tell from our politics. Like, you can't just sort of look at what someone like Vladimir Putin does and say, well, the devil's doing that, and he's trying to do this. I mean, even Daniel, who's having the curtain pulled back, who has actually got, you know, angels there telling him, hey, this is what's going on, this is what's been happening. He doesn't actually know what's going on. He has to keep on asking. And then even after the vision, he says, okay, so what does this mean? I still don't get it. So when someone tells you that they can look at the world and tell you what's going on, they can tell you what God wants. They can tell you who God wants to win a war or something like that. Well, do they think they know more than Daniel? that great interpreter of dreams, that great predictor of the future. When you look at your life and you think, oh, I know what God's doing with me here, and you think you've got a good handle on that, maybe you don't know as much as you know, as you think you know. Even if you look back, I mean, sure, we can thank God for good things as we look back and see that certain things did happen. Clearly, it was in God's plan because it did happen. But we think when we think we know what God's up to, you get to something like this. Daniel peeks behind the curtain and for the guy who can see way more than us, the one thing he knows when he looks behind the curtain is, okay, it's clear that I know nothing. I don't get it. But these spiritual forces that Daniel's interacting with are real. They do interact with history. We just can't see how. We can't see why. There's human faces to spiritual forces in the world, sure, but, but we can't... And sometimes we can see the lies that they then try and sell the world, sure, but, and sometimes we can see that those lies make people do, be do beastly things. But we can't always know why God is allowing these things to happen. Now, recently they had a, a vote in the US Congress. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty pivotal vote within a certain cultural sort of conflict that they're having over there. And I don't like getting into conflicts. I don't stand for either side of American politics or anything like that. And yet it was interesting that over 200 members of a 400-and-something um, uh, 400 person-strong government body voted against a bill, and that bill's purpose was for uh, babies who were uh, born, despite the attempt to have them aborted, to require that they receive medical care and to be cared for as human beings who are born. 
and over 200 people voted against putting those protections into federal law in America. Now, I, there's, I know that there's all sorts of complex reasons and difficult issues within a space like that, and yet if you've got a child who was born and over 200 people voting to say, oh, we don't need to protect that life, there is a twist there, there is a beastliness, there is a lack of humanity that somewhere... And those people, those people weren't just doing that because they felt like, oh, no, I don't think so, I don't care, in the quietness of their own homes. Those people are doing that publicly because they think people will agree with them and will like it. They're representing their constituencies. And it is really deeply sad because there's something in our culture that has gone beastly rather than stayed human. Anyway, we get the angels of God next. The angels of God, they strengthen Daniel upon whom God's favour rests. And we get into the vision. He's prepared, he is picked up, and he is strengthened for the vision that he is about to face. And we're going to get into that. Now, there are... Um, Here's the, here's, the, here's the vision. Let me, let me present it to you. There are three more kings. Then there's a fourth king. Then there's a rich king, and he gangs up on Greece. Then there's a mighty king who can do what he likes. This is Alexander the Great. Then there are four more kings, and there are, there are the four generals. Then there's another king from the south, but he's not really king because then his commander become king, becomes king. And then they get together and be king together. Isn't that kind of cute? And then the daughter of the king will go to another king from the north, and then she doesn't get to be king. And after a while, neither does the actual king because she gets betrayed. And then one of her descendants becomes king and attacks the other king from the north, and he wins. And then he steals their god and takes them back from Egypt and so he decides to leave the other king alone for a while until the other king invades his kingdom and then he doesn't but then he gets a big army and then he does. <sighs> that's just the first little bit. Uh, if you want it, so that's my notes. <laughs> this, right, that, that, that should make it all very clear. It's, 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 it's all a bit big. But it's interesting. Did you notice how even as I said it then, the number of times I said this king and then that king and then this king and then that king, they sound just like generic things. <laughs> There's no names in this. And yet it's super accurate and super predictive. If there's, there's no, and yet if this is an actual predictive prophecy, hey, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it gives us all the dates and all this sort of stuff, there's no reason that they couldn't have included the names too. Think about it. If you know the future, exactly how the politics is all going to play out, right? There's no reason you can't put the names in. There's no reason that you don't know what they are. So there's a reason that the names are not put in there. They're not meant to be there. That's not what this text is meant to do. See, this text is not meant to predict and tell you, oh, this person's going to do this, this person's going to do this, this person's going to do this. What's the message? I guess it's like maybe a little bit like a parable of Jesus. Like he's telling a story and you're like, oh, well, he, um, yeah, he, he went to a far land. Yes, and land must stand for, and you, know, you come up with a, a particular meaning for every little word within the parable. No, you, you look at the main point of the parable and you follow that along. And, and that's kind of what we need to do here. Not just because we don't have enough time, because that's the point of the text. That's the purpose of the text. That's the genre. That's how it works. Like Hamlet is a... If you're watching a play, right, it's different to listening to a news bulletin. Hamlet is a play by William Shakespeare. Its main message is that we can't be certain about things, but if you are always indecisive and you don't make any decisions, people are going to get hurt, so you have to make a decision. The news bulletin's message is that the Hobart Hurricanes are coming seventh out of eighth in the Big Bash League at the moment. Now, they're both communicating true things. But the play is communicating truth through the medium of fiction. True things 
by using made-up things to, to say it. The news bulletin is saying that the hurricanes suck by noticing that even the Brisbane heat are above them on the ladder. Crazy but true. Now, apocalyptic and other similar literature around in Daniel's time was not for the purpose of knowing the future, but for the purpose of unveiling, of pulling back the curtain, of revealing the reasons behind what's going on and what's the big picture of it all. And that's, so that's what we're trying to do when we look at all of this detail, and that's how we're going to read it well. Not by trying to match the detail to the future or points in the past, but to see what it's trying to do. Now, what we're going to do is zoom in on... Uh, the verses 20 and onwards in chapter 11. And because these are the bits about Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, we met him a couple of weeks ago. And because that, these are the, the, the moments that are the focus of it. And helping the Christians or the, the, the people of God at that time is the purpose of this whole bit. Now, we're going to pick up on the career of this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, remember how after Alexander the Great was, uh, died, that his kingdom was split up into these four different ones, and the Seleucids, the, the Seleucids who are in the north, at least for, with respect to where Jerusalem is, they're up in the north, and the Ptolemies in the south are sort of sandwiching Jerusalem in the middle. Now, um, the, the Seleucid king gets murdered and this man, Antiochus, returns to Seleucid territory with an army to take power. He's related to the king, but he's not the real king. He's a pretender to the throne. And in fact, what he does is he pretends to be holding on to the throne for his young nephew. Oh, no, this is, this is, this is the real king. I'm just going to help him out and ends up seizing power through that, which is probably the, the deception and intrigue that's referred to in verse 21. So this is, we're now following the history that's that both from the sort of the secular sources we've got, but also how it records with what Daniel says about what's going on. Now, a little bit of history in this time. The importance of the temple and the centrality of religion to the Jewish people, really, really important. And so, in fact, what actually that meant was when you're, when you're conquered by an emperor, then the high priest basically became the chieftain, the local governor in Jew, Jerusalem. And that... That makes a lot of sense if you think about it, why um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the Sanhedrin had all this power when Jesus was around. Because, you know, you've got, a, you've got an emperor, but then who's the local authority? Well, culturally, it all centralized there in the, in the temple. Um, now, um, Antiochus... Um, Oh, sorry, yeah. Antiochus, this, the, the, this, this sort of um, Seleucid king who was over Jerusalem, regularly wheeled and dealed with power, right? He, he loved it. He loved to give out gifts to make people owe him favours and, and to just, just to lavish gifts so that everyone would sort of be on his side and give him the things that he wanted. Now, in, um, in Jerusalem, there's a bloke whose name is Onias, and he's the high priest. Um, and yet, Onias's brother... Oh, yep, there's, there's Onias there on the coin. Um, Onias' brother, Jason, bribes Antiochus, gives him some money, says, can I be high priest? He's like, yeah, sure, you can give me money, sweet, you can be high priest. Um, but then a bloke from another family, Menelaus, he offers a bigger bribe. So Antiochus, can I be high priest? Yeah, sure, sweet, you give me money too, go for it. Yeah, no problems, not, not a problem whatsoever. But then Ananias, probably not very happy about not being high priest anymore, um, leaks the, to the public that Menelaus has stolen gold vessels from the temple. So Menelaus hatches a plot to have Ananias murdered and does so. And all of that is the, the source of the information you see in verses 23 and 24 there, all of the intrigue. 
See, Antiochus loved, loved using money to buy himself friends and loved receiving money so that he could then use it to buy other friends. The thing with Antiochus, though, is that all of this sort of intrigue cost him lots of money. And so later on in life, a lot of his wars were essentially temple robberies, going around conquering in order to bankroll the debts that he's incurring as he purchased for himself more and more power. Now, verses 25 to 28, we're tracking with that bit. Now, this, this Antiochus, he's the, the king of the north in this Daniel passage. Um, he's the king of the yellow bit. He had a sister. Now, I will give you a lot of points if you can guess what Antiochus' sister's name is, if you, if you happen to know this much history. Anyone? No, I didn't think so. But still, pretty impressive, right? So this is Antiochus there. That's his coin. That's his picture. His sister was Cleopatra. Sorry, not that Cleopatra, though, that you're thinking of. This is her great, 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 great grandma, Cleopatra. Right, so he's got a sister, but that Cleopatra, that sister, well, she dies. Uh, because, and she was the, king of e- the, the queen of Egypt. And her very young son, Ptolemy, Ptolemy VI, so we've got, um, he is crowned king. So Antiochus, previously sister, um, is queen of Egypt. He's like, right. My baby nephew is now crowned king. Easy pickings. I am going to go and fight him at at Pelusium. And Antiochus, in this battle, wins the battle, captures his nephew, and ends up controlling lots of Egypt. But because he didn't have the capital, Alexandria, the Ptolemies just put a crown on his brother, who's also named Ptolemy. Because, you know, that's not confusing at all having two brothers named Ptolemy. And so they have him, who is the king in Alexandria, and Antiochus is like, oh, okay, this is, I can't conquer Alexandria, so what I'm going to do is I am going to take your, take your brother who I've captured and I'm going to make him king in Memphis and try and... and but really, he's just, he's just a puppet king, right? I'm just going to have him, and then I'm going to use that to try and take over the country, but then he can't because he can't conquer Alexandria, and then... The boy's sister rocks up, Ptolemy, Ptolemy, I'm your sister, who's also named Cleopatra, because these families like being clear, and says, boys, stop your fighting. They're like, oh, okay, we'll stop our fighting. And when Antiochus leaves one day, they say, ha, all right, we'll stop fighting, we'll just all be one happy kingdom again. And, and in the end, Antiochus loses everything that he fought for, and he's back to square one, which is what's going on in verses 27 and 28. Now, he's not very happy about this, so he says, I'm going to go back again. And this time, it, as you see there, he is stopped by ships, as you see there in the Daniel section. Now, in history, these ships is, as we talk, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this is an envoy from Rome because the two Ptolemy brothers sent a letter to Rome saying, hey, can you tell our uncle to behave himself? He's being a big bully. And Rome says, sure. The Senate says, right, we'll, we'll write an edict, send it with one of our generals with a bunch of Roman legionaries to make it a little bit scary. And the Roman envoys tell Antiochus, go home. Stop being cranky. Now, Antiochus stalls and doesn't give them an answer. And there's this beautiful sort of uh, scene where apparently the envoy walks up to Antiochus. They're in Egypt, they're sand. So, and just like draws a circle around Antiochus and uh, then just walks back and says, you can't leave that circle without giving us an answer if you're going to go home and leave Egypt unconquered, while subtly you know, pointing to the Roman legions behind him. At which point Antiochus is humiliated and goes home with his tail between his legs. But he doesn't go straight home. You see, the, the, uh, on his way back, 
he comes through Jerusalem. Now, remember how we said that defeat, everyone had heard that uh, Antiochus actually had been killed in that defeat. He hadn't, he just turned back, but they heard he'd been killed. And so what had happened in Jerusalem at the time was, Menel, uh, was Jason. So remember, Jason is, um, Jason is the surviving brother of Anias, who, you know, one of the, he was one of the bribers who got killed. He attacks Menelaus. And Antiochus hears, oh, there's a rebellion in Jerusalem, and he comes and attacks the city, pretends to come in peace, but then attacks on the Sabbath. When they're not fighting, nothing's happening, they're not on their guard, and slaughters many. Now, the remaining details that we get there in this, in this vision detail the time when Jewish religion was abolished, when the, the tribulations of the Jews under Antiochus' brutal pagan, anti-God occupation. This is the time of the Great Tribulation where, where you can't worship your God for fear of your life. And this is what Daniel's being prepared for. Get ready. This is how it's going to go. This is where the vision kind of ends, really. That's going to happen. It's not really comforting. Just that bad stuff, that's going to happen. This is how it is going to be. He is going to destroy the temple. He's going to pollute the temple. Now, there's kind of a there's kind of a reason. Like when I was sort of, it almost seemed like a bit of a parody. I imagine when I was saying this bloke, you know, this king did that to that king, then that king did that to that king. It sort of, you know, reads like a, a pub brawl. Yes, yeah, some bloke hit some other bloke, then some other bloke came up and king hit him from behind, and then some other bloke came and 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 that actually is deliberate. It actually sort of matters because as we read Antiochus' story. This verses 20 section that I've just unpacked with all of the images there, it's actually like a rerun of the earlier kings that were, that were almost parodied. So these earlier kings were talked about like they're just a bunch of, a bunch of idiots, fight, fight, lose, win, lose, win, lose, lose, win, win, lose, win, lose. Nothing ever changes. It's all just the same. And then this, um, this, this Antiochus who thinks he's so great, well, he does all of those same things. So for someone who's under Antiochus's reign, you're thinking, ah, oh, these guys all look like a bunch of kids squabbling over a, a, a soccer ball or a, a seagulls squabbling over a chip on the beach. Lantyachus, this great and powerful, apparently God, above God's king, he's just like one of the seagulls. Um, he's able to do as he pleases in verse 11. Oh, sorry, the, these earlier kings did as they pleased in verse 11 and 16. But then by 36, well, that's what that's exactly what Antiochus does. The, the previous king of the north invades the beautiful land in, verse, in chapter 11, 16. And this contemptible person, who's Antiochus, also invades the beautiful land in verse 41. They both gain support of some of its inhabitants, 11, 30, verses 11, 30, and 32. The king of the north shows arrogance in eleven twelve, the same kind of arrogance that uh, Antiochus shows in 36, 37. They both make treacherous agreements verse 17, and then later in verse 23, and they both meet big roadblocks in their rise to power in verse 18 and then verse 30. And they're always concerned with getting tribute in verse 11 then in verse 43 as well. There's all these ways that Antiochus, well, he seems so great, apparently, he seems so powerful, but you're just, you're just, you're just another generic Woolworths brand Seleucid king. I'm here and I'm under you and I'm scared of you and you seem so powerful to me, but like there's been one in the generation before you and there's one in the generation before him, there's one in the generation before him and one in the generation before him. And they're all dead now. There's, uh, 
there's a scene in the first Avengers movie, and at the risk of looking like a pop culture-loving silly person, um, I, I want to tell you a little bit about it. There's a scene where this powerful being comes to Earth in order to subjugate Earth, in order to taste the, the drug of power. It, and it's exactly the same thing that Antiochus is doing, throwing around his money so that everyone will come to him. There are always men like that. There are always people like that. People for whom the sense that the power that they get from their suit or from their briefcase or from their laptop or from their size of their recreational vehicle or whatever it is, they have that sense of power and it's a drug to them. And they like wielding their power over other people. And there's something beastly about it. And yet... For those Christians, for those God followers, I should say, pre-Christ, this entire... No, 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 you're, you're, they're always men like you, I'm sorry. And they always die. The previous kings are pushing up daisies. Death will come for Antiochus as it did for others. So says God. His empire will rise, sure, but it will also fall, just like the other ones did. Seesaw, 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 seesaw. See, this is why the time periods in Daniel are actually crucial, not because they predict exactly how long this hard time will, they will go through is, but because there will be an end to it. Maybe even that's why in verse, there's verses 45, there's a bunch of predictions that actually don't match the histories that we have of Antiochus' final campaigns and his final death. Maybe that's why it's a bit different, because it, it, it invites us as readers not just to apply to Antiochus, but like Jesus did, to throw the prophecies forward once again, to see that in the last days there'll always be men like him. There always will be. There'll always be men in our world who seek power. Power over other people. In Mark 13, Jesus throws those predictions forward using the same language of Daniel. It's obviously got Daniel in his mind. And yes, Jesus is pointing to the, the destruction of the temple that was coming up soon so that his, his followers would be aware of that. And yet, when we get to Jesus again in the book of Revelation, he again throws it forward that there will come more times of tribulation like this until Jesus returns to claim this earth to end warfare on earth and to wipe away every tear. There will always be people like this. Maybe you've known some, maybe you've known some women of the same vein. Brothers and sisters, we need to be really careful what we worship. We need to be really careful what we use to make us feel secure and at ease. If you are seeking the power to control your external circumstances as the thing that puts your heart at ease, instead of trusting in that I have got this heart that I can't quite control, I can't get it to do exactly what I want it to do, but I'm going to hand it over to the one who is able to give me blessing no matter what. No matter what darkness he finds in this heart, he is able to deal with it and end up leading me back to blessing. If I, if I, if I want to control my circumstances rather than let God be the one who's in control of my destiny, then I will act in a beastly way. I will become less than human. This is the big message of Daniel as an overall thing. Because when we love to have control over our little patch of reality, more than we love to serve the God who owns it and who promises to bless us if we would but trust Him rather than place ourselves as God, we become beasts too. 
which is why the angels who came serving God to strengthen Daniel, to lift him up, to care for him, didn't appear as crazy, weird-winged beasts like they do in other angelic visions. They appeared as human. Look, in some ways, Daniel's not a very upbeat book, <laughs> and the end's not all that happy. These visions that he's got are of suffering. They knock Daniel out. And so we get to the very, 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 very end of the book. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. This is the last verse of the book. What do I do, he says. What do I do? What do, I do? If all this is true, it's all just going to be this bad, this hard in the future. What do I do? As for you, go your way until the end. You'll rest. And then at the end of days, you'll rise to receive your allotted inheritance. You'll die, says the angel. And then at the end of days, resurrection. See, Daniel's hope is resurrection. He, that, and, and it's his only hope. His hope is in another life. His hope is in something far from here. But, but now he hears inheritance. He's thinking something real, something that matters. But this is something that's only going to happen after he is rested in death and is raised again. He, he's thinking fields and crops and vineyards and work. That's what, he's in, that's what he knows an inheritance is in the land, the thing that he's missed out on for so long. But Daniel, you're not going to get back to the land in this life. You're not going to be home ever in this life. The only time you're ever going to feel that, that true home, is when I raise you again and remake creation. Um, the start of 1 Peter, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, he's obviously read his Old Testament. He has obviously read Daniel. And he's obviously understanding what Christian's situation in, in the same way that Daniel's situation in exile in Babylon was like. Uh, let me read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, who are exiles, scattered. And what does he say to those? He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. You hear all of the Daniel themes coming out. That can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is now. No, it's not. It's in the resurrection age. It's kept in heaven for you. See, look, we've got the new birth. That has started now. But the completion of being home won't be until the inheritance then. With the strengthening of the angels and the greatest of all spirits, the Holy Spirit, we can be remade now. We can experience the rebirth of our soul. We all have next steps to take with Jesus where we'll be strengthened and made wise and prepared for heaven, prepared to be able to enjoy heaven. Um, a couple of verses later in 1 Peter, the, the, the purpose of these struggles that are coming, and I think he says it here, is that you'll have, to, you'll have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You'll suffer grief and trials in this life. It's coming. They're hard. It's not, again, it's not the cheery message, is it? But the struggles, the purpose of them is to refine your faith, to test your faith, to change your faith. Now, it's not, that's not just saying, do I continue to believe that Jesus is actually real? It's saying, my trust in him. Preparing our heart so that we will trust in God rather than in the things that we can see in the here and now. Because 
our, our ability to enjoy heaven, our ability to be fulfilled there is actually only going to be as great as my ability to trust that God is good and loves me. You see, the, the purposes of going through the hard times and going to God and saying, God, this is really, really hard. Can I still trust you? Are these things still good? Are you still here with me? Does this, uh, do you, is this even real? Is this new birth? Is, is resurrection coming? And doing that hard heart work with God and saying, do you love me? Am I, am I important to you? Do I matter? And, and having our hearts restored through that and slowly coming to believe, wow. As, a, as our dear brother John Jansen shared two weeks ago, I have been through so much suffering and that is what has taught me to trust that God loves me even though I know that I will die soon. The refining of our faith through this suffering prepares us to be able to enjoy heaven because we'll only be able to receive the love of God as we trust that he really loves us, as we open ourselves up to him, as we make ourselves vulnerable to him, as we worship him. See, the, the point of this all, I'm hoping, it's, I'm hoping the, the, the point that this pushes us to is coming together here. See, until Jesus returns, the things of this world will go up and down. Back and forward, seesaw, seesaw. Different powers will rise, different powers will fall. Do, do not look at what you can see to be your only horizon. Don't, don't just look at Mount Wellington and think there's nothing over the back. Kingston does not exist. It's not a thing. It exists. It's just over there. It's where Tim and Aaliyah live. I've been there. It's nice. It's kind of nice. Not as nice as the Eastern Shore, but it's kind of okay. There's something beyond the horizon of the things that we can see. And our trust has got to be in the one who is there, in the home that he promises that is there. And as we grow to trust and believe that he is good, as we go, to, as we go through hard things and yet go through them with him and find that he is with us, even as we are away from home, it is then that we will put our, our worship him instead of the things of this world, trust in him instead of those other things, get our satisfaction from him instead of these other things in life that distract us, that look so much more immediate than the, the mountain that's right there. And I'll trust something beyond that that's going to prepare me to live in that world beyond that and actually be there as a fully rebuilt, reborn human rather than the beast scrambling to get whatever I think that I need here and now. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we see all the things that we see in our day-to-day lives. And sometimes, Lord, it's hard to to see into the future because you haven't pulled back the curtain for us in every way. And we, we find it hard to see your goodness, the beauty of what it's going to be like to be with you, the incredible thing that it is to walk with Jesus and suffer with him in this life in order to have the glory in the next. And so, Lord, it's so easy for us to grab onto the things of this world, to either put our hope in, in your church winning certain victories in this world or to, to put our hope in um, the world, this world looking in a certain way or our, our, our status within it or our, our ability to have comfort within it. And yet, Father, this time now you are using to make us fit to be over the hill on the other side in a place that is our true home. And so, Father, as we get told, as Daniel got told, there is suffering to come. Father, help us to face that with a sure hope in the resurrection and a sure hope that you are over all history so that the suffering that comes will get us ready to be home with you so that we'll be able to have full and pure joy then because of the changes that are happening in our hearts in this world here and now. 
Father, we ask that for Jesus' glory so that we would appreciate him for how good he is and how good he's been to us in dying for us on the cross. But also because you are good, we know that it will result in our blessing too. We ask for that too. In Jesus' name, amen.